in San Diego. At the International Comics Expo, Margate 2018. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Children of all ages <laughs> and their parents. Um, obviously, we've got Kieran Gillen down from that there fancy London town with us today. Um, and I think what I'd like to do is proportion it out in three different parts, leaving a good quarter of an hour or so, I hope, for, uh, for, for questions. So I'm going to go through Uber, Skulls and Darth Vader, and hopefully we've got enough time for Wicked in the Divine, if that's okay with you, Kieran. Sure. Lovely, thank you. So, now, it's interesting that with Wicked in the Divine and with Uber, you've got two series that are just about to come to an end. You can see, I mean, was that the intention? It clearly frees you up to do a lot more things now. Yes, like sleeping. Um, <laughs> Uber, it's not, hey, it's not deliberate, but it's, um, I like put it, there's no way I could have possibly planned for that. Uber was started writing in 2008. Uh, like, it didn't launch till 2013 maybe that late oh man and in other words it took forever to come out it was from Avatar and it went through a variety of incarnations while Swiptiv was conceived in 2014 we kind of in our hearts of hearts we kind of always knew how long it would be like we used to say it would be between 30 and 60 issues because you know it always could have gone longer and it's going to be 51 issues so we're kind of right like it's uh, 45 of the main series plus 6 specials it's going to be and this, so that's like uh, a considerable bunch of time. So yeah, we, we realised the Uber and uh, Wicked were going to come to an end together. It's like, it just kind of did end my planning in mm. terms of, okay, I'm not really having anything firm past, you know, early 2019. So that's kind of like, okay, what next? And it, you know, it's a thing that allows me to focus. And I do like the fact there's two such different books and two such big books kind of like having the full stop at the same time. Well, they are different. I mean, I mean, it seems that very different approaches are, you know, I know that you famously wrote the 30,000-page Bible for Uber, but also... Word, not page. <laughs> words, sorry, words. <laughs> um, but I also know, obviously, um, it, it's very well documented that Wicked and Divine came from a very different part of your life, or, you know, almost a very different guttural experience. Um, with Uber then, that 30,000 word Bible, have you found that you've stuck to it relatively rigidly or have you deviated in any ways? Well, is it Clownswitz who says no plan survives contact with the enemy? I, I think, uh, you know, so no. <laughs> I mean, I was, like, I was reading the actual Bible, which is... Because it's like, a, for those who don't know, uh, a Bible is something you mainly have in television shows. The Bible defines everything about, like the fundamental nature of the show and then other writers can come on and use it. So Uber was kind of designed that, you know, abstractly someone else could write this. In actual practice, if anyone's played a role-playing game, my Bible's a bit more like my campaign manual. So like, I put, this is my campaign manual, this is the material I was gonna run for the players, as in the readers. Uh, and by definition, same as any kind of role-playing group, stuff changed. And it kind of, as I went through, stuff I planned in 2008 was a, 2008 me, that's a decade younger than me, and it, like, hopefully I've learned some stuff then. And if I haven't learned stuff, at least I've changed considerably. So, significant things about how I approach big beats, significantly different. At the same time, 
for all the faults you put into something in a document then, the more you, you know, you think about it consciously over like a decade, you realize stuff. I mean, I, there's, uh, Uber is a World War II like superhero story, and that's, in the original Bible, I don't think I had Britain drop out the war. And so I'm pretty sure, but when I was actually getting to that point of like about five trades in, I looked at the kind of global and was, Britain does nothing for the rest of the war now. And so it would actually refocus the story in, in a key way if Britain capitulated. Mm. So it's that kind of thing. And it's like, that's a, a big, large, sweeping thing. And there's much smaller things, like in terms of like vague, vague, horrific fates of people. I mean, Uber, all the main characters, and you know, who I consider the main characters tend to be slightly different from the readers do. Um, Go on then, who are the main characters for you? Well, like the three, uh, the three German battleships, yeah. uh, Stephanie, um, and that's... Oh yeah, Maria. So those, yeah. five, those five are the backbone of the book. And other characters are kind of second, it's quite secondary, like Leah, uh, Leah and Turing, uh, and various other people. And they became more important as the story went along, but they were kind of, their fate was always more open mm. than the main characters, and the main characters were kind of nailed in to begin with. Um, well, you seem to do in, in all of your, sorry, you know. It's worth noting, and that's an example of changing. So, when in this final year of Uber, any time I write a character, I'm thinking, are oh, they going to survive this scene? So it's like kind of like I'm looking for the place where, okay, how can I? We've seen 40 issues of them. What actually is the the, the thing we, the reader needs to take away at this point? Uh, and it makes it kind of interesting. In terms, like characters like Razor, who. Razor had something awful happen to him two episodes ago, and that came to me when I was writing it. In terms, of, oh yeah, that makes that makes sense of his arc because mm. he's been a character who's been something PTSD for the entire story, and that's of course you know, and there's definitely some readers who a never don't get that and b consider him a coward, and it's like no, and it, this is like you're failing to even grasp the, the level of horror that these people are working under. Anyway, you were saying. But no, it is it's a very horrific book. I, I must admit, it, it, it's clearly one of the more horrific things you've you've written um, but it, you know it, it's, it's very dense as well but I, I suppose still staying on this idea of changing you seem to still be very voracious in reading about World War II and I, and I suspect therefore you might pick up a book tomorrow and think oh I've not thought about that would that then influence slightly where Uber's going I know you've clearly got a, a finishing point it'd be interesting how you get there they're all grace notes let's say I'm always you know I'm, I'm a writer I go I'm a reader so like, there's always kind of stuff you're picking up, and even mm. just because World War Two history is kind of in the news, it's in the front pages. Like there's stuff, you know, the few years when they translated the the German book about drug uh, drug abuse in the in the Nazis, like that stuff I already knew, which I sort of was always kind of got a bit weirded by people being oh, that's not news. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I learned that from Lester Bangs. Uh, but at the same time, there's there's little bits you go, oh no, that's a different take, and the problem like. I did a book called Free for Image, which is like a, well, which is a Spartan story about the Helots. The Helots were the Spartan slave people, and you know the, the Spartans treated them very badly, including the fact they hunted them. You know they, they had open season on Helots, and I got you know and I did an entire story about essentially free Helots being hunted. The thing there is there's very little history about Sparta, mm. like and the Spartan very Spartan isn't it? Yeah, it's very good, uh, and it's mainly written by the Athenians who are their enemies. Um, or hundred year, people hundred years later who kind of glorified the Spartans. So, and you certainly get no detail about the, the Helots because Helots were slave people and therefore didn't really write history. You know, they, the working class don't get to write the history. So, where that book was, the research then was intense to write any, even a single line, mm. you have to expand out enormously. Conversely, World War II is 
there's so much information there, you never can get it right, because there's, there's, there's too much of it. And there's also, even if you get it right, people will disagree with you. You know, I have a very Marxist, material, Marxist materialistic take on this. <laughs> you know, as in I'm, I'm really about the materialism. Um, conversely, there's definitely people who are kind of like, oh, the book's wrong. No, no, the book isn't wrong. I just disagree with you. <laughs> you know, um, and I'm the author, so shut I mean, up. But at the same time, there is a completely stuff I've got to. Like, there's research I got about Brit uh, Britain's material standing at the start of World War II, which changed my opinion about where the actual problem was in World War II, uh, where, the, where the problem was in Britain, in terms of the Britain military forces. And then some of that's got worked in. That I'm not, I don't think those issues have dropped yet. Shaken. No issue twelve has dropped. No issue eleven has dropped, and there was an entire there's entire bit where she uh, where they're talking about investment in military in military yeah, spending. Yeah. It's like British military spending at the start of World War Two was really high. They just spent it on stuff that didn't work, and like it, it, it's you know, and there's no way of knowing that because that's because the whole point of war is that war. You know, I mean, wars people discover very quickly those tactics work or don't work, mm. and that's you know. And if, if bombing worked as well as they thought it was going to do at the beginning of World War II, it would have been a completely different war. If the Blitzkrieg didn't work, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that kind of, you know, and that's an example of some of my different sort of thinking. But there's lots of other minor bits, and you always try to work it in. I'll tell you what, I watched um, the amazing movie um, uh, Death of Stalin recently. Yes. Uh, which is a, a astounding and bleak and very funny in an awful way. But... Um, uh, it made me realise I wish I got Barrier in, as in uh, uh, Barrier being the main sort of secret police guy, in, um, and I've got him in a cameo in issue 15. Uh, uh, but you know, that kind of thing. But you managed to put a lot in though, haven't you? I mean, it's very dense, those first 27 issues only cover a few months. Mm. And I think, you know, when I was reading it back to back this week, I, I didn't realise that, it's only when you can, I know you don't put dates in as much now, but at the time it was quite amazing that, you know, you're only seen about three or four months, um, and you, you are learning about these characters in so many different ways as well. I mean, was that intentional? It was the nature, of, I mean, especially early Uber, I mean, early Uber was a sort of book where I worked out whether it was going to rain in Okinawa on that yeah. given day, you know, and like the, the, we're at the point now where we divulge from the timeline, so we have to be a bit more creative. And at least part of the reason why um, I've stopped doing dates as much is because there is often significant time differences between scenes. Like, it's, they kind of do it in Game of Thrones as well, just because you have it, the scenes in that order. That's yeah, what makes, yeah. That's what makes narrative sense versus there's, you know, and occasionally I use it to cheat, as in I fail to mention this scene is happening three months earlier. Like, issue when we went back uh, to Hideki in uh, Okinawa. Uh, you know, that was, oh, this was three months ago. Yeah. Um, well, isn't that? But, I mean, it, but yeah, it definitely. But yes, exactly as you say. Is it's kind of a really weird, intense period of time. And at least part of the aim of the book was. I mean, I hadn't. I mentioned Game of Thrones earlier. I hadn't watched or read Game of Thrones when I invented Uber. But then, the point of Game of Thrones, it's a wide-scale strategic family drama thing. Mm. So, in words, you kind of see all the sides of the conflict, and you, and they, and characters can exist for literally decades before they even meet. And Uber was kind of similar in that Uber, this is a strategic stale drama. As in, we have, we watch all the, we have, we have viewpoint characters on all the sides and at the higher level and the lower level. So you get to see the, the wide scale of the conflicts. And even now, I mean, that's the kind of the fun thing about the last year. And I use fun in a very quotation marks way with Uber. <laughs> as in characters who I've been writing for, like I said, a decade, they're finally meeting. 
You know, like the, 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 when Maria meets Leo at one point, it's that kind of like, these are two characters, I just want to see how what yeah. they do to each other. Um, so yes, that would be the answer. And there's so much about the scale, because for me, the, like, the World War the World War II aspect was, I want to do something at the highest level about how people fought wars mm. in that period and why, you know, fascism is and a kind of a very slow dissection of fascism in terms of why people mm. believe it and why it's fundamentally evil. You know, that was, you know, the point of Uber is that, um, really. But what I'm finding fascinating is you come into this last year, particularly in the recent issues, you know, when you've got weapons that think, when you've got weapons that are sentient, we're beginning to see that in action and how that, their mindset and the way they've been treated on all sides as if they're nothing but weapons, that's coming more to the forefront, isn't it, in this, in this last sort of year or so? The, the, the kind of the weaponization of talent is a theme from Uber for me from the beginning. Like, it's one of those things like, you get sacked, Hitler, you get sacked who was the person who basically invented the Ubers, reporting to Hitler, saying, oh, I did it for Germany, you know, and all that. No, you did it for me. And at least part of the point is, talent misapplied eventually becomes much more evil. Hitler was an incompetent. That's the thing is, you know, Gdermin, you know, if Hitler did not have some talented people in the German military, it would never have nothing, you know, we would not be yeah. talking about Hitler today. In other words, people who are quote-unquote good and just doing their jobs, and they're doing their jobs very well, if they're doing it for somebody who is fundamentally evil, they are enabling a much worse evil than, you know, that would be possible yeah. otherwise. So in other words, if you know, that also applies to the battleships, all, all the kind of characters, and a lot of the characters are about not admitting they have responsibility for their actions. And it's, it's kind of weird, but like Uber eventually just becomes to Uber, like, as a deconstruction of superhero work, it ends up cycling around to the most core superhero statement of, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, of course. You know, this is fundamentally what Spider-Man learned. Uh, and I wish, I don't know, Hans Gadamin learned, learned it as well. Only took one dead person for yeah. him to learn that Yeah, he was <laughs> smart though, he was a genius. <laughs> one last question before we move on. Now, obviously Goebbels at the moment is being portrayed as Hitler, how far does that uh, mutation go? Has he still only got one ball? <laughs> yeah, he actually got a second smaller one attached. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll I'm, I'm really, the thing about the following year, very obviously Germany is going to lose the war because there's no Not way. again, God! I, 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 I would never, you know, just, but I do get to kill a lot of, I, you know, I, I get to actually kill the the people I would rather be killing in, yeah. in, this, in the fiction. It's, that's like the other good thing about the year. <laughs> well, we will segue on to a dialogue of the kids have gone now, which is a shame, but I've got lots of questions. Well, going from something that you, you know, you've spent so much time on and so much of your heart and soul into it, how does it differ working for something with, I dare say, plenty of restrictions like Star Wars, particularly looking at that 25-issue Darth Vader on? Uh, it's like, I'm a work, you know, I've been a work for high writer since like, like 2008 now. Um, and all jobs have restrictions. I and mean, it's part, part of the, you know, I come from a background in journalism and that's kind of like, I've learned what is the job and what isn't the job. You know, you come and you see stuff and you go, okay, what am I meant to be doing here? Uh, I, like, in some ways, I describe myself, it's like being an interior decorator. I've been brought into a house for a reason and I'm doing a job. You know, Michelangelo was an interior decorator. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no shame. <laughs> but that's kind Very of... Very well paid interior decorator. I always joke it's like the Sistine Chapel, the idea of like, oh, it'll take me three years. And, he, and he, they come in in three years, it's just Artex. You know. Um, anyway. Um, 
So, like, going on the off, it's like I knew what the job was. Yeah. And in other words, that's kind of, the restrictions become the points. I mean, the point of Uber, or, you know, the restrictions there, the fact I'm trying to do as accurate as I can make an alternate history. So the restrictions there are incredibly strong. In Phonogram, um, my story about music and magic, you know, I can't just make fireballs happen. The entire point of that story is anything I do which is magical is something that music really does. Yeah. In other words, I can't do a story, unless I can work out a way that this magical effect is a metaphor, I can't do that story because that's the rules. And just because those rules are self-imposed does not mean those rules are as, in any way as for, you know, any softer than yeah. the rules that you get for work for Lucasfilm. Uh, in this case, it's like I was asked to do Darth Vader. Actually, I was asked to do probably Darth Vader. If you've got an idea for something else in the period, you know, tell us. Uh, and I went away and thought about Darth Vader, and it was that kind of, I always view it as a historical novel. Like, you know where it starts, at the end of A New Hope, you know where it ends. Yeah. Did you know it was going to be 25 issues, though? No, I knew the end. I mean, I, okay. I, it was one of the things that you know the final shot of this story will be Darth Vader on the board, on the bridge of the Executor, saying, right, I'm off to find, you know, yeah. Skywalker. That was always going to be the final shot, because that's the only way that story could end. And for me, it was like, if you look at the things, I've said this before, but, you know, end of A New Hope, uh, Darth Vader is pretty much the sole survivor of the biggest military disaster of all time. A plan that's been, you know, 20 years the Emperor's been working on this. It was basically, you know, the planet, if you follow the movies, will take over the, take over, take over the Republic, uh, build a Death Star, and then dissolve the Senate, and now they will obey us because they're afraid of our enormous Death Star. But they've blown up the Death Star. This is literally the worst thing, that's ever, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, conversely, at the start of Empire, Vader is in a much more powerful position. He's in charge of the fleets, he's killing people randomly. He doesn't kill anyone mm. in the first movie. You know, he's like, you know, just the one person. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he let him kill him. Well yeah, kind of I know. You know what I mean? Um, so his position is much more powerful. So by implication, there is a fall and rise story. You know, Vader would have been low, and how does Vader regain his power? And that, for me, was the story. And of course, the other side is, the other thing you realise that Luke, sorry, Vader realises in this period, is that um, he has a son. At one point, he realises he must do, that's why he's chasing Luke. Yeah. Um, so in other words, he's just realised the last 20 years of my life have been a lie. So in other words, that's, you know, so you do the type reading, and that is the story. And it's kind of like, I was never not going to pitch a story that wasn't that. And that's why, you know, like if I pitched, I don't know, Darth Vader's Disco Adventures. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'd buy that. <laughs> I would read it and I would write it, but it wouldn't be the job to pitch. So the actual major limitations to Star Wars were the self-imposed ones. But you know, there's okay. always there's always hard limits. As in, there's kind of like there's things you get no on. You know, and it's like, it, if something's being done in a movie, you know, like or in another medium and. I joke, it's like, obviously they don't tell us what's happening in the movies, because yeah, you know, it's so secret, but you kind of find out stuff by like playing battleships. Okay, You know, yeah. like, you pitch something and you get a no, a hard no for no reason, and you realize, okay, that's happening in a movie. <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, it, they've been also, the limitations there, this is the thing always that people forget about the Star Wars, they're also very giving back, as in the, you know, I often, not often, but I quite regularly in a script will say, okay, uh, this is a crime boss character, you know, I can invent someone here, but if you've got like a, a crime boss from elsewhere in the canon you want to use, I can drop him in. Yeah. You know, they're very giving with ideas, as unless they, they may say like, oh, we've got this character appearing in a video game in two years' time. You have going to use him, he, he's completely available. You know, and they, yeah. and they, and they send the stuff I create. Of course, uh, yeah. And it's like, it's very rewarding. What they're trying to do is incredibly rewarding for fans. As in, if, like, if you just buy any individual thing, that's great, because they're all individual stories. Yeah. But like, people who, like, who buy a lot of stuff, they'll see the, 
the amount of work and thought they've got behind it, which is pretty inspiring, you know. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm highly, I've highly enjoyed working with them. And the fact that, you know, they're the only work for hire I'm doing at the moment, kind of implies yeah. I must be enjoying it, because I don't need to do it. But on the flip <laughs> side, of course, you did bring in, you know, the much loved, you know, triple zero, BT1, and Dr. Afra. And so, you know, going back to, I suppose it's almost contradicting my first question, Clearly there was a certain level of freedom that you're allowed to have, or was it just that the Lucasfilm guys thought, wow, this is a brilliant idea, let's stick these three in. Clearly you couldn't have thought it would lead to Dr. Afra having her own <laughs> series, surely. I tell you, I'm always surprised when, you know, what character breaks that, and Afra, you know, I hope people would like her, but that they liked her as much as they did was a surprise. Um, I mean, the thing's like, Lucasfilm, as a, kind of, as a general sort of exercise, you get, you, they want you to make stuff up. Because Star Wars is a big universe, and that's kind of like the idea that you're always going to go to uh, Tatooine and meet Jabba. No, you know, no, because that makes Star Wars small. They want basically yeah. the idea that whatever's through that door over there is interesting. Like every door in the cantina would lead somewhere cool, uh, and that's kind of like what you do. So, like, I spend most of my time in Star Wars working out how to do stuff that feels Star Wars whilst not be, whilst also being new. Like, if you see the planets, I go like when I invent a planet, it's always okay. If it's a desert world, how can I make this desert world yeah. different? I mean, the current arc I'm doing in Star Wars has like, um, like part of it's on Moncala, which is the water planet yeah. where the Moncalamari come from. So I'm, I'm working, I do a lot of, um, uh, like a lot of like TV documentary, uh, Blue Planet like stuff there. And then there's another water planet elsewhere in the arc. And I go, okay, this one is covered in ice. This one's really cold, so it's like constantly got icebergs everywhere. It's constantly got stormy conditions, so it's kind of like yeah. hell. Um, but you know what I mean? That's like, I kind of, okay, this automatically has a different vibe. Um, and that goes across the entire book. They want you to invent new people. At the same time, they, they're very into tying stuff together. I mean, it's the same with like work for hire in some ways, in that they kind of, um, when you, so when you work for like, the big two, you also, they want your best ideas. They don't want, of you, to course. Play, they don't want you to play it safe, because, you know, it's like, if you look at the, um, the trailer for the next uh, movie, you know, it's very clearly, there's a lot of Jonathan Hickman's Avengers running there. It's like, I recognise that scene. I recognise that scene. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, and the point being is, you know, there's a line that definitely someone said is, you know, the comics are inventing the stuff the, movie will be, the movies will be doing in five years' time. You know, and the, obviously the movies also feed back into the comics, but the real thing is, here is cool, here is cool new shit. And the idea, like, if you genuinely want to see where the Marvel Universe is going, you pick up the comics. And you do, like... When I was pitching Uncanny X-Men, when I was pitching like all, all the books, you think big. You know, what, what's, yeah. what's the big idea? And, you know, so the limitations are relatively few. And same in like Star Wars, they want, they want more interesting Well, we made, you did think big. I really enjoyed the power levels we saw in Vader down. And it, it was interesting how they picked up on that, I think, in Rogue One. But with people who hadn't read the comic, they were quite... I remember there was quite a lot of negative backlash the way he was presenting. He's not that. He's never done that sort of thing. And, you know, like you say, he doesn't kill anyone in the first film. He builds his power. There's things in the Force that weren't in the first film and the second film. And you're in, in sort of Last Jedi now that are already being touched upon. But I really, really found your, your Vader... You know, strong and stable, shall we say, to, <laughs> to, to really sort of enforce his power, a bit like she's doing in Syria at the moment. But, um, but, but that was the first time I'd seen that in comics. Now, did you know at the time, going back to the hard no and maybe no, did you know of his presentation or did you even know he was going to be in Rogue One? Uh, that's tr all that is tricky to talk about. Okay. There is a kind of a guiding line with Vader that you want, he is just very hard. 
<laughs> as in, like, for me, like, as my guiding aesthetic when writing Darth Vader, in fact, in the series, and any time he turns up elsewhere, there is, you should be scared when he's on, you know, you, you should be yes. scared if he's on panel. You have no idea who's going to survive in that room with him. Mm. Uh, he could do, and that's the reason why we never did things like captions. You never see inside Darth Vader's. No. You know, you get one panel flashbacks, so you know what he's thinking of, but what does Vader really mean? For me, it's like the Punisher. There's a kind of fundamental distance from the Punisher you acquire. In the same way, you have a fundamental distance from Darth Vader. Uh, and that was Connolly's. Yeah. So the whole thing is about how frightening can you make him. Uh, so that it's evaded down. I think the other way is, what is too much? And it's like you've seen in the prequels, and they, so the level, there's a lot of stuff that the Force has done across the whole canon. So we have quite hard limitations. There's definitely things we've suggested Vader does, which seems too much. You know, deciding what is too much right. is the thing. But, you know, like, can you name an example? No, of that? no I, I, I probably better not name stuff. But no. like, you know, they're, they're all kind of arguments I can see. A lot of it's actually how he, like, even when I hang him surrounded by all the people with guns, he just pulls the pins on their grenades. Yeah. That's not a major force move. That's not like a power move. That's just a kind of, oh, I'll do Snapping this. Snapping his fingers. You know. And he's, the fun about Vane is very good. And, like, he's a very good pilot. Like, do you miss writing him, then? Hmm? Do you miss writing him? There's always an opportunity to get him back in on the Star Wars comic, of course. Right, okay, that's a, that's a hard no. It's one of things like, yeah, Vader is like, I... I know he'll turn up in my Star Wars yeah. comics because you've got to earn it. Like when Vader, Vader's not like the villain. He's not Skeletor. He's no. not. The, you know, if Vader turns Thank up, God. you know, like it's all, not curses. You've got away again, Luke Skywalker. No, Vader turns up and everyone like basically uh, feces everywhere. Yeah. You know, they, they, they should be petrified <laughs> of this dude. Um, so, but he's, he is. He'd work well in Uber. Yeah, he's fun to write. I mean, the thing about Vader. I mean, Vader is just like this awful force of nature and the, when I was writing the actual comic like I woke up in the morning and basically had excitedly run downstairs and I work out something else Darth Vader could do with his force powers to kill somebody else and that's kind of what the job is like almost an issue of Darth Vader should have Darth Vader is something really cool which I haven't seen before and that isn't too powerful but it's the right level it's the, mm. every issue should have something where Darth Vader does something which is very Darth Vader-y you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. but it's great that you've also got those comedy dark comedy moments admittedly but comedy moments at all you know otherwise it would be quite a I imagine quite a tough read yeah I mean like the reason why I invented the cast well, you know was because we wanted to do a Star Wars book and if you do an Empire centric story it's not a Star Wars book mm. but definitely an Empire centric story is just a bunch of fascists and these aren't fun you know these people are you know they're, they're, they're this is great it's, it's literally the jackboot stomping forever so to actually make Vader even work in something that felt like Star Wars because stories about comedy and capital R romance and all the, all that kind of stuff you have to like change the context mm. of Darth Vader a bit which is why he's you know he's on he's the underdog we, we invent people who are worse than him I mean, I'm not actually worse than him in terms of, like, power, but worse than him in terms of ethics. There's a, there's a Robert McKee kind of argument about the Godfather, in that, how, why do you root for the Godfather? Because you have these other mafia bosses who are much worse. And, like, if I was a mafia boss, I would be that mafia boss. In that the same way as a bit yeah. like Darth Vader. As in, like, you make people, different evil people around him, and make, okay, Darth Vader at least has some form of honour. He's not like, a Tag is just really boring. You know, Tag's a guy who runs off graphs, and he's killing just as many people. But, like, but there's no... Great to see him in a comic, though, I must admit. <laughs> there's no drama, you know. There's no drama to him, uh, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, but that's where the droids come from, and Afro comes from, into, and uh, uh, Black Chrysanthemum, in that I wanted, you know, 
one way to maintain the idea of making it feel Star Wars was just to simply invert the cast. Yeah. In other words, I, you know, you have, especially with Darth Vader because he can't talk. You know, he, the more he talks, the less Darth Vader he is. So you're surrounded by people who can do the work of exposition, and you also find people who have that kind of group dynamic. Mm. dynamic. Afra is kind of like, you know, Afra is kind of the Han Solo kind of aspect. She's kind of got, she's more, but of course, but dyna- yeah. and of course, Luke. Uh, is Vader and Vader is Luke. So, you know, Vader takes the Luke role, yeah. Afra takes all the hand role, the droids play the role they do similarly. When Trios turns up in the fourth arc, uh, she's, um, she's kind of like inverted Leia. You know, you yeah. Know, you know, she's saving I get them, that. You know? um, so there's a lot of those kind of mirroring aspects I do. Because it's like, can this feel, how can I make this feel like Star Wars whilst just changing everything? Mm. And it does. <laughs> and the thing is, you also added a bit of colour to the Empire as well. You know what I mean? I mean, it might be different shades of black, but nonetheless, you know, you, you create an empire that isn't just boring, boring, boring. It's got a voice of its own, if you like. We've met this character, uh, me and Sice, actually, no, it was me, actually, me and Kev Walker, uh, met this supporting character in Africa called Tolvan. And Tolvan is, we're basically running like the, fu- uh, not, it's kind of the fugitive, but it's, uh, have you seen the movie Out of Sight? Out of no. Sight is basically uh, criminal, you know, criminal, be, uh, being chased by agents, and they, they agent, and they sort of fell for each other. Right. So oh it's, yeah. So it's I hate you. I hate you. I yeah, love yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. As in that, and that's kind of what I wanted to do, but with like these two space lesbians. Uh, <laughs> so, but and Tolvin is like she doesn't really care about the Empire. She's a career soldier. Yeah, yeah. You know, and like she has ab- her lack of ethics is a problem. <laughs> but the fact that you know, you know, she'd be very if the rebellion took over the galaxy, she'd be looking to work for them. I'm just, you know, I'm just a careerist. And that's, you know what I mean? Yeah. The Empire's big. Like most, you know, a lot of people just need a job. And if, <laughs> unfortunately, that job, unfortunately, that doesn't make... Unfortunately, sometimes you're, you know, that's why... Okay, we live back to Uber. You know, people get dragged into these enormous machineries and not and choosing to be... Choosing to not look at the ethics of it is itself a sin. You know? I, yeah. You know, so there is a lot of that. Well, did any of the research that you did, prior, you know, so many years ago now for Uber... Did that influence or colour your right when you came to looking at the Empire, both in Darth Vader and in the ongoing Star Wars comic? A bit, you know, I'm always trying to work out, like, a, that I lean materialist means, I suppose it makes me an awkward fit occasionally in Star Wars, because I want things to make a lot more sense. And okay. like, I mean, like, the best part, as in, like, Star Wars, especially in New Hope, is a fairy tale. That's the point. Oh, of, of course, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a classic more, hero's quest. The more I look at, like... Uh, uh, and you hope the more uh, the more weird that sort of little angles work in it. You know, it's like we say it's a classic hero's quest. But, you know, the hero doesn't turn up for twenty minutes. You know, that's weird. Uh, you know, and it's it's not about a materialist battle. Mm. Um, conversely, the second you start, you know, when I say materialist, it's like why is what I mean. What's actually going on? Why are they doing this thing? And like my current Star Wars run, I'm. Um, at least it's kind of like the inverted of the Darth Vader's run because it's me looking at, you know, a, a New Hope to Empire. Yes. And a, a New Hope, the rebellion should be on the up because not only does they've been blown up the Death Star, mm. now the rest of the universe knows about the Death Star and they know the Empire would do that yeah. and they know the Empire hasn't got it anymore. So this is the last chance, this might be the last chance to do anything about the Empire. You imagine recruitment be way up, mm. you know, and you know, that, that, and of course at the start of Empire, oh no, they're trapped on one crappy planet. Uh, so things have gone badly wrong. <laughs> so that's kind of where I got to. Was, and also, what's their plan? You know, yeah. what's, you know, we're rebelling, quote unquote. What actually is the plan of a rebellion? So, but that's what I end up doing. Right. Like I made my run is explicitly here's all, here's what we're trying to do to bring down the empire. And also, 
here's what we're trying to do in case they do something like a Death Star ever again. So, yeah, you know, yeah. like, we fluked it. You know, we, you know, a, a dude put a secret problem in the Death Star and got it, eventually got it out, <laughs> and we managed to get one guy getting a lucky shot. That's no way to run a railroad, you know? Um, like, so that, that's kind of where I come from, and that's where everything goes to. So, but I like okay. that's the bit that come that kind of interlinks with Uber. Yeah. But I wouldn't really say it's influenced by Uber. It's just right. kind of how I think. As in, like, I quite like stuff making sense. That always sounds more aggressive than I mean it, but I'm like, okay, why is somebody doing something? And yeah, there's got to be a logic, a beat to it, I suppose. Yeah. I get very annoyed. I mean, I get annoyed in movies. I don't want to name any names. They're not actually Star Wars movies, actually. <laughs> but there's quite often, like, I see people just doing the kind of the, this heroic sacrifice sort of structure, and very clearly, you know, your hero's quest stuff. And it's like, there's no reason they're actually doing this. This You've just reached the point where somebody has to sacrifice themselves. Yeah, for that. I'm with yeah, you. This makes no, you know... And that drives me yeah. that frustration. Well, I'm very much aware that we've only got about 10 minutes left, and although we haven't caught up on the Wicked and the Divine, there might be some questions from the audience, so we can always come back to Wicked and the Divine, but I want to uh, just throw it back to see if there's any questions from the audience. I'm Matt Gould, I've covered everything. Leonard. No, 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 then I'll jump in then. Um, in terms of you going into Star Wars now, and uh, coming off uh, Darth Vader, it, I find the tone between the two books, very interesting, because you kind of come at Star Wars like epic canon, and you seem to have a lot of, a shit ton of fun doing Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> epic canon, that's, a, that's like the name for the Death Star, that's <laughs> <laughs> my epic canon. Um, but with the creation of the characters that you did for Darth Vader, it, it seemed like you were just, like you say, you were bouncing down the stairs. Do you feel that you've kind of lost that going into Star Wars or is it just a different approach to the, the titles? It's like, I think when I started Darth Vader, people thought I had the hard job. Like, you know, doing a Star, you know, and Jason had the easy job because Jason, he gets right Star Wars characters. Yeah. And have fun, you know, like they exist, they're all that. Conversely, I know I think I had the easy job. I mean, my job involved making more stuff up, but my point being is I was able to make stuff up and by definition made it new. So words, there are stronger, there's much more limitations in terms of character in Star Wars. So words, not least the number of characters. You have like, you know, Jason mainly made, I would say mainly made Luke lead. And like, in the same way, you know, Luke's the lead, Han and Leia are the main supporting characters, uh, the droids and Chewie are kind of like tertiary supporting characters. But that's still writing a team book. You know, that's like mm. writing the X-Men. And writing the X-Men, I mean, I wrote a nine-person a nine X-Men team, which is not... A smart thing to do. And there's tactics you can do for that. And that, in other words, if I'm basically developing three characters, because I kind of made Leia my co-lead, and Han is quite forward as well, that's three characters. So in other words, there's less room to make stuff up. Uh, and I'm looking for more ways to support characters are. Because in other words, a lot of the supporting cast who come in um, are there to perform that purpose. And the purpose is smaller. Like, you don't get characters the size of Aphra because I haven't got room for a character the size of Aphra. Uh, and I, I dropped Sana as well, because I want, like, I, Sana does come back into the book, but like, I wanted to really, to really carefully delineate my three main leads journey in the first like 12, 18 issues. That kind of, okay, this is where Luke is, and this is where Luke's going, this is where Han is, this is where Han's going. I mean, Han, you know, I said earlier, at the end, in A New Hope, Han is, you know, he is the complete random rogue dude. Yeah. Which is, but, you know, at the start of uh, Empire, Leia says, you know, you're born commander of men. It's like, is he? I haven't seen that. And that kind of like, you know, Han 
reluctantly mm. being dragged. You know, that's the kind of like connective tissue. Oh yeah, and they've all got really high ranks. I mean, I, Han hasn't, but like you know, Luke's a commander, right? I think at the start of Empire. But he's still a yeah, Han's still a general. Yeah, well, yeah, a general by the end though. Yeah. Like he's not a general at the start of Empire. Um, but the point being is like that's where I'm digging. So the limitations that there are tighter, but. Um, it's the sort of thing where when people see where I'm actually going with it, they'll say, oh no, Kim's having fun with that. And I, like, the, the big arc I start on issue 50 is, you know, it's, it's enormous and seismic. And then, oh yeah, yeah, that's Kieran Gillen doing Kieran Gillen things. I do want to get a question on Wicked then, very quickly, I know that we're running out of time. And I do want to get a Wicked quick... No, no, definitely. It's weird, it's my most successful book, yeah, and we haven't talked about it at all. <laughs> There was an excellent post uh, by Jamie um, in the last week or so, um, talking about his redrawing of page one from the first issue and redrawing it again for a recent upcoming issue. And the, the evolution of his art. How do you see the evolution of your writing for Whitley from that first issue to where you are at the moment? That's a really interesting question. I mean, if I'm seeing... I come up with it no. once, once a week. That's pretty good. <laughs> I'm impressed. Uh, Jamie has... Um, I'm in, because the fact we're in the last year of Wigdiv, I'm not, I am in a quite contemplative state in terms of what I've actually learned from this enormous piece. Mm. Um, I mean, the reason why Jamie, I mean, Jamie redrew certain panels and re-inked other panels, which is interesting, because it, it was just the inks, and it, he redrew certain panels for reasons which anyone who reads issue 35 will see. Um, so, like, I mean, that's all, I mean, Jamie, on the original phonogram, he wants to go back and change the first issue a bunch. Because uh, there was stuff he wanted to fix. And by the time he got to the end of issue six, he realised, I can't do that. My, my style in this period has changed so much. Any fixes I do would look really weird. I'd have to redraw the whole issue. And, hey, I'm not doing that. <laughs> um, in the case of me, I'm not sure. There's one thing like my methodology, my methodology with Jamie, and to a lesser degree everyone else, has got so fluid, it's a bit worrying. The way I write scripts now, like, I'm not writing Alan Moore scripts anymore. Uh, I'm writing, um, I'm always writing stuff that cannot be written. And I mean that, and they're kind of, like, you know what I mean? They're literally, or definitely not drawn, as in I'm writing amorphous conversations in terms of like, okay, we can try this, and then this, and this, or maybe we can go this way. Like, I'm not telling Jamie what to do. This is much more like, I'm gonna, you, okay, I can literally see Matt Fraction in a burst from behind me and hit me. It's more like jazz. Uh, you know, as in my scripts are like really weird and open and like conversational and existing to be rewritten. Like I write the script and then Jamie draws it and I will change significant things at lettering. And I will, um, that. And there's also a sense of the actual, um, the complexity of some of the stuff. Like the next issue is like, we're, I mean it's killing Jamie at the moment, but it's grotesquely ambitious. I mean, you can also see that with the actual book itself. I mean, the first couple of, uh, the, the first arc, it, you can almost do a one-sentence picture of it. It's the gods returning as rock stars. Mm -hmm. So they, you, can, you can do it. You can't do that with this latest arc. You can't sum it up in one sentence. It cannot be done. It's like uh, us trying to do the actual, uh, the recap page at the start of the issue. That's a hell of a time. <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm just like, okay, we're just, I, I, we try, because we can kind of get it down. But you're right, it's a, comp it's a really complicated story. We, and it was always, the funny thing is, Wickdiv is entirely based upon me four years ago. By which I mean, we planned all this. And like anybody who, 
who follow us with can see that we are explicitly, we must have known the stuff we are showing then, then. Yeah. So in other words, whilst this entire structure is there, the execution and how we choose to approach things and what darlings I kill, um, that, that's a kind of like, it's, it's like, there's a degree of character growth for me, by which I mean there's some stuff. The hardest stuff is, same with Uber, this is the stuff I decided like four years ago or ten years ago in the case of Uber, I just don't agree with anymore. Or I think, no, this is problematic in a way which I don't like. Uh, in which case, it's a question of like working out how I execute this in a way which I find more bearable. And there's things which... Um, you know what I mean? As of like, the, the stuff, especially early phonogram, the stuff I did then, I find, I find embarrassing and unforgivable now. Like, um, yeah, as in like, I, there's a degree of autobiography in my early phonogram, which is crass uh, and, and dislikable. And I, you know, hide more and more of it in fiction. And that's kind of, you know, Wickdiff is in a similar way in terms of like, I actually want to not go to the places I, want, I thought I wanted to go to. Um, but yeah, I would say, generally speaking, I'm a much more fluid to the level of weirdness writer. As in, I no longer write pages. Like, I mean, I can write. I do pages, but when I'm writing an issue, I'm writing the whole issue. Like, I'm, um, I'm just doing, okay, I'll, I'll do a page. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm a page. It's more, you know, have you seen a 3D printer work? Yeah. I occasionally work like a 3D printer. Like, you, you do the whole thing, the whole thing, you go back and forward, and it's, and it eventually builds and performs the script. And it's not that my scripts are getting any smaller, but like, <laughs> there are definitely a level of, to it, in that, no, as in, I clearly have a way that I think will work, but the, my openness to what Jamie may want to do with a page is, is considerable, I guess, and that's probably the main way. I think I'm kinder now. <laughs> Sam? Um, uh, is anything happening with the TV series? <laughs> Not that I can talk about. It's like t TV stuff is TV stuff. It's hard now. It's one of those things like, you know. <laughs> It's one of those things like TV stuff happens at TV time, and there's various like stuff that's happening, and my agent will be speaking to me about it. But really, like, how, me and Jamie don't think about it very much. Mainly because I'm killing Jamie with scripts. It's one of those things that we just occasionally get calls from Hollywood people, and we, you know, have that. But you know, you never know. Like, we're still we're still kind of optimistic, and there's still really interesting people like involved. You are Douglas Adams with your hitchhikers. Twenty-five years, thirty years. That's the thing. It's like you know. It's like look at all the stuff. Imagine all the stuff that Neil's doing. When was that bought? You know. It's like yeah, TV, TV stuff works at TV it's time. It's there now, isn't it? And yeah, it'll yeah. always be there. Yeah. Um, it's all kicking off in uh, the Wicked and the Divine at the moment, isn't it? And sort of people maybe we thought they were more innocent than they look, aren't as such. Um, I love the specials because obviously they do fill in the gaps. They do give us the clues. Were the specials always part of the plan then, or were they, like you say, this jazz sort of idea of writing? Are they things you thought, you know what, this would work really well? Or did you have the Roman Empire, 1923, at the back of your mind, or even the forefront of your mind? It's kind of like you know that I was... The fact we mentioned the uh, Romantic Pantheon in issue 2 implies that we knew it then. And it's like, I always knew we wanted to do more Pantheons. Yeah. That was always part... These part of... Anyone's doing like a five-year Vertigo model series, you've got to have an idea that's big enough that means that if you're like, say, Transmetropolitan or Sandman or Preacher or any of those kind of big long runs, they, the, the, the model of the series is flexible enough so the writer and the artist's changing interests can be folded in. So in the case of, like, Wickdiv, I, I want to talk about art for all human history. Yeah. So in other words, any story idea I could do, I could fold into Wickdiv. So in other words, 
that aspect was. In terms of the specific execution of the specials, as interstitials between arcs, no. I think that came by when we were looking at our schedule. Right. And we realised this would be a really good way of actually making it work. And of course, after commercial suicide, we also realised there's a justification in removing Jamie as the artist. Yeah, because, yeah. Because, of course, Persephone's dead. You know, uh, so having a different artist there makes sense at some level. But at the same time, there is a, a smaller cognitive leap for characters you've never seen before, drawn by different artists, than characters mm. you have seen before. So in other words, we end up like recruiting the artists solely for the period. Like, you know, Stephanie Hans doing, um, doing the romantics because she's an astounding, you know, she gets a real sense of overdrama. And Andre doing the, the Roman because I really needed somebody yeah. who would draw a triumph, you know, and Ord in 1923 and so on. Because uh, Ord was, you know, she had that kind of cool modernist vibe to her. Um, so, yeah, it's one of the things that the plan is, I say it's all incredibly planned, but it's more like you, you know them. You know the landmarks. Yeah. Like, okay, over, like the, I could tell you at the start what would happen at the end of every trade. Mm. So these are the kind of the big narrative beats. Conversely, so much of like the detail and the routes between is complicated. I mean, like all the I knew the, all the characters' arcs. As in, this character's main problem is this. Their yeah, secret yeah. is this. <laughs> uh, and then, but when that comes out, this and this will happen. But I couldn't always tell you when those secrets would come right. to the boil. There's a secret about. Bowl in the current issue, and I was thinking, I was thinking that was probably Imperial Face. As in, there's stuff with Baphomet, there's stuff with Baphomet Morrigan. I thought that, like, there's an issue 37, which is their issue. I thought maybe, right. maybe that could have been issue 23. Okay. Like you know, when I was like, I knew I had all the material, but how you choose to mix it, you know, yeah. that's kind of that was the job, and that's why it's interesting because if you plan it all at the start, it's just typing for five mm. years, and that's not that's no good either. So does music? I mean, you mentioned this sort of methodology of jazz writing, and of course you did the ring. Please, music. please stop saying jazz. No, okay, yeah, right, <laughs> jazz hands. No, but does I mean music obviously influences your work, and I think uh, it influences a lot of people, and I think it's really great that as a writer you you, you brought that to the forefront. I think. Um, how does it influence, if, if at all still, um, the way you approach the wicked and the divine? It's how you think about stuff. I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm just obsessed by music and I always, yeah. you know, always have been. It's such an enormous emotive part of me. You're literally the only person who knows this is a band name, by the way, so I was very impressed. <laughs> you're just a big fan. You're a big fan of Northeast New York. You know. um, yeah, it's, um, it's a useful metaphor, especially like, you know, someone like me and, you know, I'm falsely friends like Warren Ellis and Matt Fraction. And like, especially at the time we were coming in, you can talk analogously as an effect which happens in music, which you can mirror in comics. And you can't really mirror it one for one because of the different mediums, but that kind of feeling you're looking yeah, for. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, and comics for me is its best as a bastard medium. Comics is its best when it takes from other forms and, yeah. and as opposed to just taking from itself because then it gets very inbred. Um, so for me, music is a way of thinking and a way of like, um, I've got this idea that pop songs, especially where you have both lyrics and mu music, are interesting by the because lyrics aren't poetry. How a lyric can combine with a sound, combines with how it's sung, mm. creates a natural meaning. And for me, that is so much about how I think about pages or, or lines of dialogue or like juxtaposition of art, okay. which art is a general, in-specific thing and makes people feel stuff. As in just how Jamie's characters are drawn, yeah. versus a specific line of dialogue, and, and that's all about the juxtaposition. And the same way pop music is about juxtaposition. I'm also very interested in like pacing and rhythm and mood and effect, and these kind of these intangibles. Um, so it's my love of music. It's what's with my love of games. I mean, like, uh, like if you look at say 
Ubo very clearly you can run it as a war game. It's, it, it's that yeah. kind of like, yeah. these are different modes of thinking. I talked about my materialism. So my, my poetic side is always about the music, but it's also about how music creates tempo and rhythm and like, if I'm thinking about fight scenes, I'm always thinking about music. Um, so you actually listen to music as you're writing, because I find, yeah, yeah, I mean, all people don't. I mean, I, I've got this enormous Wigdiv playlist, and normally if I'm writing Wigdiv, that's on shuffle. And oh, okay. I, and I kind of use it as a tarot deck. Like, and occasionally I'm deliberately skipping through it because I want to hit a Morrigan song or a Baphomet song or whatever. Uh, but quite often it's just shuffling. And it's also, the fact I'm listening to this enormous playlist when I'm walking around London, um, I'm also thinking, anytime I listen to that playlist, I'm thinking about Wigdiv. So due to the signifiers in the record, uh, and the way the, the random shuffle happens, I'm thinking about different characters or different moments in the story pressed against each other. So I get insight into character or scenario or plotting. So this using music as a way to mix up my thinking and allow me, you know what I mean? I yeah, said, so yeah, once everything yeah. is planned, it's like, how can these elements be best combined? Yeah. So that's kind of like, when we did over, part of my dismount, because I know I'm going to be, it's going to be very weird for me. Um, I'm going to do like writer's notes on all the songs. So it's like over 500. So like, this is, this is part of my, um, I, like... This is another book in itself, surely? Yeah. As in like, I, I think at the end of the week that I can afford to basically take a month off to sort of like, lie on the floor and, oh my God, I'm not doing Wigdiv anymore. Uh, you know, and it's like ways to emotionally detach from something. Yeah, yeah. Because it's like... Well, it came from an emotional place, so I yeah. dare say it'll end up in an emotional it's like, place. It, it was a machine designed to torture and heal me. And the really scary thing about Wigdiv is it works. And actually that links back to your question in terms of like, what you've learned. In that Wigdiv was also designed to teach. As in, like, it starts quite simple, and the end of year four, it's something else. It's for me, it's like a degree. It's like, it's literally designed for me to try to tell people, this is every single mistake I've ever made, and this is every single mistake, which hopefully you can, you don't need to do this stuff. Be better than me. And it's kind of like, I want to, it's, you know, part of it's about wanting to make, trying to encourage people who want to be creators to be creators, and also, these is, please don't make these mistakes, and if you do, recognise them. So that even the four years is like a degree course, as I'm aware of. Like, wow. there's actually some readers, the younger readers who started like you know quite young. Yeah, of course. And like, it, like it's people who started university at 18 and now are leaving university, and it's like it's yeah. been such a. I mean, I remember that period. And, and that's it, a big part of your demographic, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, like, and that's it to be part of a meaningful, a meaningful state of anybody's life. That's the thing about actually reading a comic as it's going out, mm. whether it's monthly or individual issues. It's part of your life. It That's is, kind of like, it really and, is. like I remember comics I was buying it every month. Like Next Wave, 2005 was a terrible year for me, really, really awfully bad. Um, and Next Wave was basically one of the few things that gave me joy. Um, and like, especially with Wake when they've got such a community there, and you see the actual interactions inside the community and the friendships that they've found. Yeah. That's really very powerful. It's like about it's it's a band. It's like oh, basically we've been on tour for five years, yeah. and now we now we're <laughs> split up. It's very weird. That, that's a great that's a great place to I would have asked you if you still enjoy your imperial phase, but that'll have to be for another <laughs> Kieran Gillen, thank you very much for your time and I'm glad I squeezed an extra quarter an hour on because I did want to talk about Wick and Div, so I'm very, very pleased we were able to touch on that. And uh, you do give great place to a lot of readers and thank you for your time here today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.